Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy dealing with how we know what we know. In the 21st century, this is also a major practical question. We live in an age of conspiracy theories where facts are not accepted as facts, and people live in a media environment that is a stew of commercially motivated misinformation and politically intended disinformation. Dr. Matthew Sweet is a cultural historian, polymath, and the star presenter of BBC Radio 3's ideas program, Free Thinking. He has also been engaged on the front line in the conflict between rational and conspiracy thinking since researching and writing the 2018 book, Operation Chaos, which introduced him to the strange world of perennial American presidential candidate Lyndon LaRouche and his conspiracist cult. Today, he spends more time than he would probably like engaging in social media with conspiracists who have media platforms, and I wanted to talk to him about this unsettling aspect of life in the 21st century. But before we begin the conversation, the commercial. This is the seventh anniversary of FRDH Podcast. I keep it going through donations from my listeners. If you haven't yet, please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation. It's a simple process, and it really does let me continue this work. Now, I started my conversation with Dr. Matthew Sweet by asking him, how does he know what he knows? It's a hard question, isn't it? It seems to be becoming harder in a way, because every bit of information that we check, every person who we see speaking on the TV and, you know, the things that we hear parliamentarians saying, sometimes we think, really, are you sure? Perhaps I need to go and check that. And one could spend, you could spend all of your life doing that, couldn't you? Um, You could spend all of your life checking your ref, checking the references, checking, you know, one source against another. Somehow the plenitude, the rather crazy Gutenberg moment like plenitude of uh, of the modern world um, turns everybody, if you want to be, into a kind of fact checker because so much of what is out there is so fishy, isn't it? Or so comes to us with such a, um, often with rather kind of a doubtful pedigree. The, the verification process. Yeah. A philosophy teacher of mine uh, in a course on Spinoza, of all things, said, Michael understands the verification process. I had no idea there was a verification process (laughs) involved. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a a mathematical process in in Spinoza's writing, and mathematics is kind of pure. You can't really dispute Mm. what the conclusions Mm. of a mathematical formula are, more or less. Mm. But more seriously checking facts i mean as a journalist i check facts all the time and even then you know you you balance and you make a decision you know there's this fact and there's that fact and i have this much time and i can't tell the world everything i know so you leave stuff out okay but is that the beginning of this age of conspiracy thinking that is flourishing online and all around us I think it's given it a boost. I think it's um, it's made it's given this this discourse more makers and more participants and more consumers. But really, I think it's something 
it's something very old. Really, it goes back to the 19th century, which is the, the source, really, of all the master narratives that the conspiracy theorists love. And they now have new places to spread and new places to be tenacious, things that, uh, you know, once, uh, I mean, you knew New York in the 70s, didn't you, Michael? There were once people who handed out this kind of thing on street corners that was, uh, you know, photocopied in, in little rooms. But now those same ideas, really even some of the very same texts, can now be disseminated you know, across the world uh, through electronic means. You know, they're there on the website, formerly known as Twitter. Um, they're there in spaces that you think might be a little bit more careful or regulated. Um, and they have this extraordinary life um, away from print, away from the green ink letter. Now it's there uh, all in zeros and ones. Well, you say 19th century. Why do you start there? Well, because I think this is really where the proper discourse of conspiracism begins, really. And and it was sort of a bit of a surprise to me, but I'll tell you a good example. I was looking at uh, Richard Murphy's book about tax, um, the one that Jeremy Corbyn uh, took quite seriously. Um, very uh, you know, uh, best-selling book. By I'm just going to stop you for a second because yeah. not everyone is is who listens will be yeah. aware of who Jeremy Corbyn. Ah, okay, is or was. I mean, Jer Jeremy Corbyn briefly was the leader of the Labour Party and led led the Labour Party into a shambles of an electoral defeat in 2019. Mm. But he comes from the extreme left wing of the party. So, sorry for that interruption. Not Carry at on. all. No, I mean, he comes from a, a kind of a long dissenting tradition within the the Labour Party. I think there's there's you know there's always somebody uh, representing that that wing of the Labour Party. But uh, a book that he became quite enamoured with, took quite seriously when he was uh, forming his manifesto, was a book about tax by the by the expert academic on this subject, Richard Murphy. And I read this book and it had these quotes from Abraham Lincoln in them. I th and it was in support of monetary reform. And I clocked it because Chris Williamson, a former member, a former MP of the Labour Party, um, who is now works for Iranian television and is considered a, um, a conspiracy theorist, I think considered by many to be an, an anti-Semite as well, and certainly somebody who concocts very strange ideas about, you know, who is responsible what for what in the world, was tweeting about this uh, this story to do with monetary reform, saying that everybody should know about it, everybody should, everybody should be taught it in schools. And it was something about uh, the greenback dollar and the Rothschilds. And I thought, hello, hello. Generally, I think if you're looking for a very fast test about whether or not somebody is part of this uh, conspiracist world, you know, go through their public utterances, search for the word Rothschild. It's kind of like the canary in the coal mine, almost because of the long history of conspiracy theories um, that are, you know, circulate around um, that uh, that banking family. So the quotes, the the Lincoln quotes that were there in an article uh, by Murphy, an article circulated by Murphy, Murphy's book, and recommended by Chris Williamson. I thought, where did these come from? And they come via a slightly circuitous route from a 19th century pamphlet that claimed that the Rothschilds assassinated Lincoln. They're totally fictional. 
and they have been uh, swashing about for years i think in this uh in this discourse and there they are in black and white in this big hardback book that jeremy corbyn read and which jeremy corbyn was quite influenced by i think so it shows how you know we kind of need to be careful uh, about this stuff and need to sort of check the provenance of the um of the words that we read what's interesting I mean, does anti-Semitism have to be part of conspiracy theories? Substituting George Soros today for the Rothschilds. Not that they've fallen on hard times. They're just less prominent. I think it doesn't have to be, but but it's where it comes from, because the structures of these ideas have their origins, I think, in the in the protocols of the Elders of Zion, a small group of people manipulating history. They've been doing it perhaps for for decades, for generations, even for hundreds of years. Um, and they are heading towards there. They're about to make their big move. It's coming anytime soon. You know, they're gathering their forces. You know, they've uh, they've got the discourse sewn up. Something's about to happen. It's coming soon. If you don't watch out, they're going to take everything away from you. And so you don't have to be an anti-Semite to believe that a small group of people are capable of doing that. But that's the source of the idea. And weirdly enough, once people get on that track, anti-Semitism, more explicit forms of anti-Semitism, seems to be where they end up. So it doesn't have to be, but you would, you would, I think, have to be um you have to you would have to be very careful and ignore most of the utterances of the people who are swimming in this bit of the culture with you um, to insulate yourself from it. I mean, people, you know, there's that expression that anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. And it's also seems to be the conservatism of fools and other, you know, other, other ideologies of fools. It's a really simple explanation for why you don't have what you want, why you feel powerless. There are powerful people in the world. Lots of them are up to no good but they do not all sit in a room together. They have not all formed a coherent plan between them. But when you hear talking people talking about these vague and endless and really, frankly, impossible coalitions of forces that are supposed to be, you know, about to stop us all from eating meat or stop us from leaving our homes, force us to eat insects, all of the current kind of uh, the ideas buzzing around um, the idea of the 15-minute city, which has become really uh, has been elevated from sort of ideas about traffic calming in in our city, cities to evidence of a plot that's about to happen. It's sort of on its way. Somehow your local councillor in, are involved in it, but, you know, they're also linked up with the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization and any other number of acronymic organizations. And somehow they've all got together to make this happen. And in 20 years time, you won't be able to leave your home and you'll only be eating locusts for dinner because that's what the net zero people really want. And, you know, it sounds, <laughs> sounds messy, I, 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 but yeah. there are lots of people who are on this path right now. I wonder if if we can make an analogy to the old phrase about cliches. There's always an element of truth in a cliche. And I sometimes wonder if there's always some kind of element of truth, not about the specifics, anti-vax, whatever, but there is a, a sense that somewhere underneath the conspiracy, there is actually something you, you can think about. And that might be the purchase point into the society. Well, powerful people are not as accountable as they should be. 
the rest of us don't have as strong a voice as we should. The world is full of injustice and its injustices have that sort of structure to them. But the but the but you know uh, there's a line you can cross here and you can see people crossing it. Um I think a, there's a very good example in the British academic David Miller formerly of Bristol University currently in dispute with them um I think and uh he had as a specialist subject the analysis of power relations. Really this is a kind of jot, dot joining. Now Powerful organisations and individuals in the world do have connections of one sort or another. But once you have constructed a narrative that says they're all doing this together, they're all doing this secretly, their tentacles are everywhere, and you get into that kind of language, then you've then you've crossed the line. And uh, David Miller, you will now see sitting on Iranian state TV next to Chris Williamson. Basically, he is doing, uh, you know, he, he he imagined that some students at Bristol University were agents of the agents of international Zionism, agents of the Israeli state. And, you know, go again. Uh, and it's my they people. Were just, they I, were just students. They were just he, students who didn't like didn't like the fact that he was doing PowerPoint presentations where he was drawing lines between Jews with his special felt tip pens. Hmm. What I was actually what I was trying to get at is something I observed uh, 20 years ago, actually, this 30 years ago. Northern Ireland was my beat for National mm. Public Radio and an IRA bomber set off a bomb in a fish and chip shop on the Shankle Road, which is the heart of loyalist Protestant Belfast. And the bomb went off early. He was killed. Nine shoppers. It was a Saturday afternoon. Mostly women and children were killed. And I went over to cover the first round of funerals. This became a habit over a period of years when it was my beat. And I, at the first funeral on a what they call a council estate here, that's a public housing project in America, I arrived, had my tape recorder out. And suddenly this group of men went charging past me. They were they were shouting at each other. It was inco I, I couldn't quite catch what they were saying. And a woman came along after and said, what's going on? What's going on? And she said, they've stolen one of the hearses. I said, what? She said, the IRA have stolen one of our hearses on the way to the cemetery. Now, that seemed to me wholly unlikely. And of course, it was wholly unlikely. And yet... Here is a very human and understandable moment, and this conspiracy swept through the crowd. It wasn't a mob. I mean, it was a crowd of mourners. It became a mob as the rumor swept. And I think, you know, there is a human element at the core of conspiracy that is based on rumor. And until you can verify, then rumors have the power of fact. And I, I do wonder if that's also what underlines some of this conspiracy stuff. Yes, I think you're right about that. And, you know, let's not forget that sometimes these things are true. And that, you know, I don't know about hearses being being hijacked, but certainly both sides in the in the conflict in Ireland were hijacking hijacking cars left, right, and center, particularly in the particularly in the uh the Civil War era. So I can see sort of the genealogy of an idea uh, like that. The problem is, is that, there, that yes, these rumours now circulate in a much bigger 
kind of space. And also they're a register not just of anxiety, as your uh, your example shows, but they're also about desire as well. And I think this is this is different. There's something cozy, there's something comforting, there's something that uh, makes people feel justified in their cynicism, I think, about the contemporary conspiracy theory. It's a way of opting out of your responsibility, I think, for being part of, of civic life, uh, for saying, you know, they're all the same, uh, they all get together, they're all against us. Um, there isn't really any kind of uh, uh, proper variety or opposition in the political world. The opposition is controlled. They're all puppets controlled by some strange force uh, beyond that force that's very rarely defined. It's always kind of one more antechamber away. So, so yeah, these are the these are the structures in which these rumors move. But I think also there's a sort of it's almost like a kind of fan discourse. I think the leaders of conspiracy culture. The people who consume what they do don't take everything that they say on face value because they all think of themselves as critical thinkers. So they will cherry pick between various authorities and they will say that, well, there is some, you know, there is some big thing going on and he's right about this and she's right about that. But almost I think it's it's there's something recreational about it. It's something people do. Um, so that that I think is what makes it more dangerous and more powerful, really, that it isn't just about people's uh, how people will behave when they get to the ballot box. If they if they go to the ballot box, it's about a culture in which they swim and a culture that seems to me to be getting bigger and noisier and making incursions into the mainstream culture that it didn't really do before it's a tribe and i think i think that's the new aspect of it i mean there have always been little groupy schools and societies who have organized themselves around conspiracist um ideas but it's a sector this almost now it's a sector of the in britain the un the you know the unregulated media and it seeps into the regulated media as well you know and here in britain i look across at uh America and fear really that the the kind of the, the that vast wave of media where there's no real pressure to verify anything as long as it feeds the discourse it seems to be okay it's which where are you going you're saying that America will come to Britain and make it even worse or Britain will end up in America this is this the Rolling Stones on their first tour? <laughs> no, just... I think it's uh, I think it's you coming to us. Really, I think it's um, I think that you know that this quite small space within the British media that's regulated by the state regulator Ofcom feels very besieged at the moment because the audience for that the output of that regulated space is is dwindling, partly because it has to stick to standards of veracity and due impartiality that large numbers of people are now frustrated by because it doesn't give them the kick. It doesn't give them the buzz that a Russell Brand podcast would give them. Yeah. You're talking about GB News, which is which was started 
God knows, uh, 18 months ago, two years ago now. I can't remember. But it, consciously modeling itself on Fox News, um, although it's much more like One American Network and Alec, you know, the Alex Jones end of things than Fox, which in comparison to what's come after is actually almost serious um i know i didn't mean that listeners it is not almost serious but you're talking about great gp news which is this weird space which and 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 they hover at the edge of regular well they're supposed to be regulated you mm. you often write about this um on twitter i'm not going to call it x um i think it's a conspiracy um <laughs> no uh, you know th that yes they're regulated but on the other hand, it's that moment where, well, it's free speech. I can say what I like. It doesn't matter that it's disseminated on television, which gives it extra force in people's minds. Because I don't think most people think about this dynamic in how they take in information. People criticize mainstream news media, legacy news media. But I think we almost subconsciously now impart to the institutions a higher level of veracity than we do. You know, you say, oh, I saw that on Twitter. And and mm. friends will say, oh, it's Twitter. Yeah. But if you get something on television, mm. it it seems to be more true if you get what I'm saying. Well, it, it, that's because it, it does follow those forms that conspiracy theorists in that unregulated space mimic. You know, they are in a the sort of television studio that Alex Jones pretends to be in uh, or is in, you know, Alex Jones is in drag as a as a kind of television presenter. But uh, they are supposed to be the real deal on the other side of that uh, regulatory wall. And I think what's happening at the moment is that the idea of what the regulator is for is in a very fuzzy and perhaps a kind of crisis struck uh, state. There are those rules that broadcasters who work at the BBC or Sky or Channel 4 have to follow of, of due impartiality. You won't see a news presenter giving their opinion down the barrel of the camera. Now, once you've got the presenter stepping outside of that, I'm not sure where we are or what we do. And I'm not really even sure if the regulator knows that yet either, because GB News has been pushing at this idea very aggressively. And I think really just because it's it's... Uh, you know, it has some good journalists working for it, some of whom I think probably shudder at uh, some of the output of the of the channel. Um, but it does have these spaces where these rules seem to go into abeyance. Um, and it has presenters who are addressing, I think, pretty directly an audience of conspiracy theorists, because some of the things that they say directly to the camera would be incomprehensible, really, to anybody who is beyond that conspiracy culture or who didn't you know have a kind of professional interest in it uh, like me so when a presenter says hmm why is bill gates buying up american farmland hmm why do planes keep crashing into grain silos two rhetorical questions that would not really set an alarm off anywhere at the regulators there's nothing you can really complain about there but if you know that uh, the you know the the conspiracy of that week was that um, Bill Gates was crashing planes into grain silos in order to capture American agriculture. Those, <laughs> then you'll know what's being referred to. And that happens on that station all the time. 
And um, what it means is that all of this material moves beyond the regulated space in clip form onto Twitter, onto YouTube, onto Facebook, and actually gets picked up by properly conspiracist entities who then recirculate it. So GB News has this domestic audience where sometimes presenters speak in a kind of code in order not to fall foul of the regulator, or they will present you with stars of the con of conspiracy culture who have no other claim on anybody's attention other than they make videos of themselves sitting in their cars saying that Prince Charles is a Satanist um, and that... Uh, the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. But if they go on to GB News behaving nicely, not properly described, described as campaigners or constitutional experts, but the audience who knows them knows who they are. And okay, so, well, this, mm. this brings me to a question I didn't want to get to yet, but we're here. And that is the owner, the people who own and finance GB News live offshore, um, so hedge fund guy who i believe is in dubai or abu dhabi i'm not sure which is this done because he the the proprietors rupert murdoch or at fox or whomever actually believe this guff or is it because they see that there is a there's money to be made out of this kind of thinking i don't think it's to do with money because they're money losing enterprises these uh they don't make money they may want gb them. news doesn't make money they, no way no it's losing loses immense amounts of money it's very far from making a profit um it's years away from doing that it can't even you know it's very hard to get advertisers because um you know generally advertisers lots of advertisers are uneasy about its outcome i think this is much more personal really i think it's uh it's a kind of project to widen the Overton window, but quite what they want to stick through the window. I'm not sure once they've widened it. It seems to me that the Overton window, as it stands, you can say pretty much <laughs> pretty much anything that a decent person would want to say. Um, and uh, But I think it's also to do with a dislike of institutions, of, of liberal institutions. There's a kind of anti-vax miasma that hovers around some of these people i mean if you look at what the the man who finances gb news does on his social media he's uh you know he's retweeting uh robert f kennedy jr robert f kennedy jr's fantastically ignorant grotesquely ignorant views on the war in ukraine for instance and uh, I, he, I think he has deleted this now. But I did see uh, a clip of um, that come that of him uh, declaring a clip from Rebel News, which I think is we can say is a far right news site, a journalist, if that's what we want to call him, uh, harassing uh, an executive from Pfizer on the street. And uh, this he was hailing as the future of journalism. It's not a future that yeah. I I want to be in. <laughs> I, so I see the, 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 the question that comes to mind is did he short pfizer and the, just before covid broke and they came up with with a vaccine and now he's trying to drive the stock price down no, so you know i mean the, the, this is I know, i'm being silly i, no. I do want to slightly change the subject because yeah. you're a really intelligent man and 
a great radio broadcaster, a cultural historian. How did you end up with this? Oh, I well. know the answer. <laughs> I know the answer because you wrote a book yeah. about Lyndon LaRouche. And yeah. was that your first yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a uh, this is this began for me when I was I wanted to write a book about military deserters, and I started thinking, can I write a kind of complete and utter history of desertion from the perhaps from the Second World War onwards uh, with living witnesses? Not many of them around, and then I fastened upon the subject of the American deserters from the war in Vietnam, who went to Sweden um, in the late sixties and early seventies. And who entered this very strange psychological zone. Their group was infiltrated by the CIA. They never really knew who the mole was. They all went to a very odd place psychologically. And many of them, their, the radicalism that had caused them to step away from the war brought them into the uh, the orbit of uh, Lyndon LaRouche, who is, you know, for for young for young listeners, um, was a running gag on The Simpsons for a long while, wasn't he? A, a perennial presidential candidate who stood from the seventies onwards and who believed. I mean, he's it's very hard to summarize his beliefs, but he believed, for instance, that uh, Bertrand Russell and the Queen had got together to send the Beatles to America as part of their psychological warfare operation against them in the 60s, that the Queen ran the international drugs trade, um, and that, uh, but but lots of his ideas are, are very similar to the kind of anti-Green conspiracism that we get today. And in fact, you know, uh, he's, he really is the source for a lot of that, you know, net zero will turn you into a uh, uh, will put you in a kind of concentration camp or make you a peasant uh, farmer. Um, these ideas have been around really since the Green Movement started in the in the early 70s. So, yeah, so I just started talking to people who had survived this experience and actually some of them who were still within the LaRouche organization, which barely exists now but it's still there um and was rather it was very noisy through the 70s and into the uh, and into the 80s yeah they um, were those people handing out handbills <laughs> on the streets in new york they occasionally got uh got elected as well if people weren't uh weren't kind of looking properly <laughs> Um, so yes and it was attending their meetings and trying to understand what happened to those men that that showed me the geography of conspiracy culture and showed me how its ideas and its personnel kind of flowed from one place to another so when you so i used to have to go to america to study this kind of thing and now i don't have to go anywhere it's piped into my home all the time and um the reason why gb news is such a fascinating example is because it's a sort of uh you know a, a petri dish where all this stuff is growing stuff that uh one used to have to travel in order to observe Tra travel broadens the mind um <laughs> what i'd really like to know is in talking to these fellows they're all mm. men you know did you, you were not well all the deserters were but of course there were there were there were you know there were many yeah, women in the groups but, yeah but did you i mean did you ever in talking to them I make the assumption because it's a really good book. The that you were an empathetic interviewer, mm. you you got into conversation even, 
They became my friends. They were my friends. I still, I'm still in touch with some of them. There's a gap when you hear people Mm -hmm. say, who in all, you know, 99%, of your intercourse with them is like normal. And then you hit, hit this barrier and say, you cannot be seeing the same world, living in the same world. But they are living in the same world. Physically, the reality is they're living in the same world. And yet the wiring in their their brains tells them to see things in this, frankly, insane way. Well, I think it's about over-interpretation. You can, you can interpret and then you can pass that point and suddenly you're making connections that are meaningless, but you're making the meaning yourself by joining these things uh, <clears throat> together. And that is, that's the essence of the, of the conspiracy theory. That's what David Icke does. He joins the dots, but they're just dots. That's all they are. They're just there. There's one thing here. There's one thing there. They only mean something when a conspiracy theorist makes a picture, makes a constellation picture out of them. But what was what was most powerful, I think, in getting to know those people was that they're all very clever. Uh, They were a lot of them were kind of people who had dropped out of college, been slightly seduced out of college, I think, uh, by uh, by the organization. Uh, and they had, they did most of them have proper research skills. They set up what was regarded by some people, even within the American government, as a kind of useful private intelligence service because they collated so much information. They all sat on the phones all day, sometimes pretending to be people who they weren't, uh, ringing up embassies, ringing up companies, uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, harassing Henry Kissinger and. Um, uh they would occasionally find out good information and they would put it all in their uh in their journal which which <laughs> quite a lot of i mean I think, i'm not i think i'm already saying that the white house might have had a subscription to it or some you know official bodies did subscribe to it even though it was uh a kind of conspiracist magazine it was thought that there was stuff in there that could be useful and what what really stopped me about it was that they you see they all could have had more legitimate lives um and i think this is something that's very important with conspiracy theorists is that they are you know they're not fools most of them they're looking for something um they they feel powerless they feel marginalized they mistrust institutions often because they've rejected them or even been kicked out of them but but psychologically, they've invested so much in this that you can't, there is no kind of cold turkey uh, for these people. And my hope is that people who are stuck in this world now will de-radicalize, because I think it is a form of radicalization. I think COVID has intensified that, you know, it is, I think we should almost think of it as that, um, you know, I, particularly when it's leading lights, stand outside institutions like Broadcasting House, the head of the BBC, the centre of the BBC, for instance, and shout, we're coming for you uh, and talk about revolution. Um, you know, I think there's there is a sort of dangerous vibe about this, a potentially violent vibe. But what I think is that you can't, it's not like people will suddenly awake from this. There is like a period where people need to recover from it and they will never totally relinquish. I knew a lot of people who were in the LaRouche group for decades. And if you've sacrificed 
a lot of your life to an idea like that that is mainly mainly meaningless what i really felt in my relationships with them was that i didn't want to punish them anymore and i felt like some of them they were all very keen to they rejected him in the end but they were still keen to kind of to hang on to something of the experience you know like he i got to meet such and such a person i uh i researched this subject they were keen to kind of preserve their sense of what the positives of it had been because it was so all-consuming um so trying and and also because I know that I know they did a lot did get out of it. Some people didn't and just ended up as kind of husks, really. Um, and I really think that that's probably the will be the fate of a lot of people involved in it now. You know, that some of them try to make money out of it. I mean, some do, but I really think most don't. So I, I think it's sort of a path to something to will to wilderness really what's interesting because this is the last bit that i want to talk to you about is that it sustains yes social media platforms have changed the way we communicate with the world and and where we get our information from um even i mean i i'll admit that now the the hollowed out nature of the main news organizations means that i get an enormous amount of my information as a journalist from Twitter, from people I I know yeah. to follow, yeah. whether in Ukraine or in the Middle East, any place that I've covered or I'm interested in, and that's you know kind of terrible because mm -hmm. you're not getting that much information in a tweet or even a thread of tweets, but it sustains and it kind of re it gets new waves of energy because individuals with enormous egos who have been famous and have seen their fame mm. drip away suddenly find a bit of conspiracy theory that they can jump yeah. on. Yeah. And I'm thinking particularly of the, the feminist author, Naomi Wolf, with whom you've engaged, mm. who, you know, 20 years ago had written some important books and, and was you know, featured in Time magazine. And by the end of the COVID lockdown had become a conspiracy nut. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I wonder just how much of that is being a nut and how much of that is needing the hit, the adrenaline hit of being in, in the international conversation being mentioned over and over again there's no such thing as bad publicity yeah what do you think i think that's that's true and she's a very interesting case because i think you can see this even in her uh, respected early work of her the, the book that launched her the beauty myth has a kind had a, in its first edition a clanging uh statistical error in it that was corrected for for the next edition and i think that so she's always in a way been a kind of conspiracy theorist except that um the first conspiracy that she investigated was something called patriarchy and there's quite a lot of evidence that that exists so other subjects that she chased after were more like were chimera i mean the the strange moment i had with her which i dare say may be mentioned in both our obituaries was when she came into my studio with a, a book that had misinterpreted um a 19th century legal term but i mean more 
broadly, really, just the nature of all the cases with which she built her book, which was about um, homosexuality in the 19th century and her contention that men had gone on being executed for committing homosexual acts uh, way into the 19th century. Um, she got this com completely wrong because of, of a term that she misunderstood. But more importantly, really, because even the book was revised, but in the in its present form, published by Virago, it is still a book that misinterprets cases that involve non-consensual acts uh, as cases involving consensual acts. She continued to to defend it, really, and, and she thought that my action in all of this, she was quite polite about it at first, but pretty soon she was on Steve Bannon's war room saying that Bill Gates had paid me via the bbc to uh to uh, to <laughs> well to what to to uh to say what that she'd <laughs> to say that she, what, what it was that she'd actually written um uh, yeah so anyway i just think it shows that she didn't really understand the complexities of the bbc's freelance invoicing system if bill gates had wanted to send me after her then yeah, there's, there's no way you can imagine the paperwork it would have been impossible um but yes yeah, so, so she can move from admitting an error in part but but never really fully admitting that how catastrophically wrong she had been i mean it's a very difficult thing to face i think that and i think it caused people who had supported her to peel away publishers to peel away her subsequent books have been published by fringe companies. You know, that book had an American edition that was published by a company that also published a book that says milk causes autism. That puts you in a certain kind of a zone, but it's a zone that's very busy. Uh, and you can go on Steve Bannon and be flattered by him. And actually, as as has just been pointed out in a book by Naomi Klein, another writer of the left who found her identity much confused with Naomi Wolf's online, so much so that she felt compelled to write a book about how it had caused her public persona to be sort of undermined and, and uh, confused by this. Naomi Wolf had kind of put herself beyond that more respectable space uh, where, uh, uh, where she'd formerly occupied. And what Klein points out, Klein spent lots of time watching her doppelganger, as she calls her, on Steve Bannon's war room. And she says, and I think she's right about this, that you can Steve, see Steve Bannon thinking, my God, she's going even further than I would. And for Bannon, you know, Bannon doesn't give a toss about whether it's true or false, as long as it creates this noise that will help him destroy the liberal institutions that he despises. And so whatever it is that Naomi Wolf does is is useful in that regard because, uh, you know, the conspiracy theorists are thrilled that somebody who used to have a respectable career is now one of their number and going further, but going beyond decency, I think, as well as reason. Hillary wasn't wrong then. There is a vast right-wing <laughs> conspiracy. Actually, it, it, yeah, I'm not sure. Vast is the wrong word, but there is a certain amount of conspiracy. I, it's not the right word for it. You see, I think that it isn't what Bannon does is not a conspiracy. What um, the there's a British hotelier called John Mappin who has a castle in Cornwall, who is always having anti-vaxxers 
round for dinner and and uh, had half the staff of GB News and lots of prominent anti-vaxxers at the Garrick Club in London, very fancy Tory club for dinner. And I think that when these people get together and talk to each other, this is not, they are not conspiring with each other. They're just talking crap. They're just, they're just splurging their garbage discourse and rolling in it with each other. Um, and in a way, it, it's like a funny mirror of the fantasies that they have about the world. You know, they think that shady people meet in smoke filled rooms and and plot how to uh, um, uh, take our property away and, uh, you know, put chips in us and zombify us with uh, with, you know, vaccines that are really a control mechanism of some sort. And the way that they meet is sort of a funny sort of parody uh, of that, um, you know. So they'll sit, they're the ones having the cigars and having the drinks, but somehow, you know, talking about another group of people who don't actually exist, who are the ones that they have to overthrow and uh, destroy. Oh, Matthew. It's a comedy. It's a it, comedy, it, really. It, it, it is, and it, and it isn't. Oh, geez. But the 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 antic in me wants to make these connections. Naomi Klein and Naomi Wolf have never been seen in the same room together, <laughs> have they? And they're both Jewish. I'm touching the side of my nose, lifting my eyebrow. Do you get what I'm saying? I do, but you see, that's a that is a problem. That's that's like when you have two dots to join. In a way, I think the fault of Klein's book is that she had that dot to join. The fact that uh, that Wolf's career seemed to be a mirror of hers, I think, is too easy an explanation for her. She sees what Wolf does as the dark, distorted mirror version of of a legitimate uh, left wing investigation of corruption and of the of structures of power but i actually think that it makes it far too easy the mirror idea makes it far too easy for her to separate herself from wolf because i think klein's book the shock doctrine which proposes a connection between the cia's mk ultra brainwashing project failed and milton friedman's uh monetarism is if not a conspiracy theory just a bit of dot joining <laughs> <laughs> I remember when when she published the book, I interviewed her and I said, I think you've discovered a metaphor here. And I think that's maybe all it is. This thing is like this thing. But it doesn't mean that you can't. I don't know. I don't really believe you can take the idea any further. Yeah. Yeah. How long will this take to be a part of history? Is this a moment? Is this... 1666, year of the devil, millenarian fantasies all over Europe, or is this something that will become embedded because we now have these these means of communicating with each other that didn't exist 15, 20 years ago? I think it's like a sort of Gutenberg moment, really. I think it could last for a long, long time. Uh, you know, this is a new media. Um, it, it's got new rules. It is like looking at Elizabethan chapbooks that tell you that uh, there's a headless bear running around in Berkshire and you know that's all the information you have so I think it could be I think we could be in it for a long time it might go on past our lifetimes I think Michael and I think the best thing for us to do is in a way to I mean not to sound too portentous about it but to kind of strengthen the walls of the citadel so that our 
the spaces where we know we can find trustworthy information, we need to we need to do what we can to preserve the integrity of those institutions that are producing information that we can by and large trust. And so I think it's incumbent upon politicians not to try and trash those institutions. Matthew Sweet, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. To paraphrase Ronald Reagan, trust and verify is the motto for our times. My thanks again to Matthew Sweet for making time for me. His book on Lyndon LaRouche et al. is Operation Chaos, The Vietnam Deserters Who Fought the CIA, the Brainwashers, and Each Other. And if you have access to BBC Sounds, his weekly Radio 3 program about movie soundtracks, Sounds of Cinema, is a joy and has absolutely nothing to do with conspiracy theories except when he's discussing the theme music for the classic paranoid thrillers of the 1970s. And remember to visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation to help keep the podcast coming. Thanks.